Hello, and welcome to the Hotel News Now podcast. I'm Brian Roten, senior reporter at HNN, and I'm here with Andrea Ryan, partner at the Fisher Phillips Law Firm. She's also co-chair of the Hospitality Group, and we are here to talk about the latest decision from the National Labor Relations Board. They've put out a final ruling about joint employer status. Now, I'm not a lawyer. I don't pretend to be one. I don't play one on TV, so I'm going to let Andrea here explain for us briefly to give an idea what exactly does this rule mean what is it andrea thank you for being here tell us what is this happy to be here brian um last week the national labor relations board which governs uh, as, as i'm sure you know governs the relationship between employees and employers from a union organizing collective bargaining unfair labor practice that's the, the their their purview they released its final joint employer rule, making it easier, and I i mean, I'm putting air quotes around easier, uh, for workers to be considered employees of more than one entity for purposes of, for labor relations purposes. Um, we see that as a, a wide open door for increased union organizing and collective bargaining efforts across the country, also making it much easier for multiple employers to be charged with an unfair labor practice. Gotcha. So uh, to put this uh, new rule into context, let's take a look back at the the history here. Uh, the, the actual status for joint employer with the NLRB has bounced around uh, quite a bit over the last several years. Uh, can you give us a little bit about the history of the the joint employer rule as it has been under the NLRB? Yeah, we actually are, are referring to it as a bit of a whiplash effect that, given all the changes that have occurred in this area over the past few decades, and and really over the past few years with the with the change in the in most recent administrations. So, for about for more than thirty years, the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, has held that two companies would only be considered joint employers, basically being equally responsible for certain labor and employment matters if they shared or co-determined um, matters govern governing the essential terms and conditions of employment and actually exercised that right to control. So terms and conditions of employment are going to be hiring, pay, benefits, discipline, performance reviews, all the ins and outs of the daily life of, of an, an individual's employment. But that law, the, the, the law at that time said you must, you must actually exercise the control over that group of employees to be considered a joint employer. So let's, let's, let's for purposes of this history, let's talk about a staffing agency and a hotel. So, um, <clears throat> So, so for 30 years, the, the hotel management would have had to actually exercise control over the staffing agency's employees for them to be held to be a joint employer. <clears throat> In 2015, the board renounced this test uh, in a very controversial case called Browning-Ferris, and it eliminated the requirement that the employer actually exercise direct control. Instead, the board said the businesses only needed to retain the contractual right to potentially control, even if it never exercised it. So um, the, the board held that even indirect control, so control through a third party, control through an intermediary, would be sufficient to find joint employment. That was a major change from over 30 years of law. 
And then in 2020, five years later, the NLRB, as I said, whiplashed and switched it up again, issued a rule saying an employer must possess and actually exercise substantial, direct, and immediate control over the employee's essential terms and conditions of employment. That was under the Trump board. So uh, that was... So that went back to the previous standard before went back 2015. To close, close to the previous standard. Yeah. Okay. Um, today's finalized rule, we're once again in a place where the standard is broad and, and unwieldy and difficult to manage because it is, it is so um, amorphous. I mean, it's really for um, to be found a joint employer, businesses are going to be liable for, for any kind of collective bargaining, union organizing, unfair labor practices, if they have the control and don't even use it or, or have indirect control. So that, that, that this change, this rule should go into effect December 26, 2023, okay. subject to comments which are being submitted now, including the industry. There's a lot of folks in, in the industry that are, um, are submitting, you know, very, very stringent comments about this. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, so, it, so this is a, you know, a final rule. This is something that the board has done on its own, going through its rulemaking process. This is different from the 2015. You know, actual, it was a a, a a case Browning Ferris you mentioned. So the the decision here came from a different process than in 2015, correct? It did, it, it, but the rule is is basically the board's stating this is what will apply when the next case comes to us or any any future cases come to us. Gotcha. So uh, now you know we're, we're talking here about the you know joint employer status as you know overseen by the National Labor Relations Board. There are different types of joint employer status, and and those are you know overseen by other departments and agencies. Correct. There is, Brian, as if this wasn't enough, um, as if this whiplash <laughs> at the NLRB wasn't enough. Um, almost every government agency that oversees the employment relationship has a joint employment or common employer status um, test. And the IRS's is different than the Department of Labor's, and the Department of Labor's is uh, different than um, the discrimination agencies. So they are, um, <clears throat> you know, they, they have some commonalities but they all generally apply different tests. And most of them um, look at the actual relationship between the parties that are, you know, the two, the, the two employer entities that are being considered to be joint employers. What, what's their actual relationship and tie to those individuals that are working at the property? Um, this, the NLRB's rule is, you know, it, it doesn't, it, it'll look at the totality of the facts and circumstances, but I mean, it, it, it is, it's going to be very difficult to avoid joint employer status in most co, you know, two two entity situations. So within the the hotel space, uh, you had already mentioned, you know, a, a hotel company bringing on, you know, a, a staffing agency, and we see that most frequently with, you know, hiring on housekeepers to help fill in for empty, you know, positions. But just within the hotel industry, where else might this? apply is this are, are we looking at franchise or and franchisee you know relationships where, where could this apply yeah brian i think any business you know to business kind of contracts are going to be in jeopardy so franchise or franchisee depending on the relation the franchise agreement and the relationship 
It's also going to be obviously staffing agencies, which are which are you know very commonly used in the industry now, given the hiring um, staffing low staffing mm -hmm. levels we have. Um, but you also need to start thinking about things like specialty providers, like <clears throat> specialty chefs, or that come in and and operate, or a, a restaurant that comes in and operates within the physical boundaries of the hotel. That's a, a, a specialty business that's likely going to be affected as well. Okay, so even like uh, if you have a hotel that has some retail space in it, could or, or would that be a possibility as well, where the employees of that store who are separate from the hotel is that a, is that a thing? It's there? a possibility. I mean, it depends on the, the contractual relationship between the two. I mean, you know, a storefront that that uh, operates out on uh, a main a main uh, uh, thoroughfare probably not just you know the hotels above them, but if mm -hmm. you can access a business from within the hotel, for example. Um, I was visiting a client recently who has a lovely patisserie coffee shop that can be accessed from inside the hotel and from the street, you know, on a on a busy street. So it'll be as complicated. <laughs> it will be complicated. It will be complicated. What and about... I think I think you almost have to uh, guard against it, uh, you know, be prepared to guard against it now. Uh, there's. Again, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for any for any employee that remain any level of, of control, including indirect control. And many businesses want to do that. So think about things, Brian, like uh, let's go back to the staffing agency, which is the most mm -hmm. common. We want them to wear common uniforms. We want them to look like our employees. We want them to share um, employee break areas and employee cafes because it's the right thing to do. We want them to live and work in a, in a comfortable place. We want to give them some training so that they, you know, adhere to certain standards that we may have, sure. that the brand may have uh, Im Im imposed on on a particular property. And so those kinds of what would what in, what would in the past be very um, minor intrusions into the work uh, into the work lives of, of employees because we're not dealing with scheduling or pay or discipline and hiring um, are going to are going to um, you know, be found as evidence, clearly evidence against us in terms of a, a joint employer relationship. And they're all important things. Yeah. So let's say that I am potentially a, you know, a joint employer, uh, you know, either, you know, I run a staffing agency or I'm, uh, you know, a third party manager for a, for a hotel. What do I need to know? What do I need to do to limit my liability then if I am going to be operating under this new rule? Well, you, you probably will not be able to limit it completely um, under this new rule, but there are there are steps you can take. First, you know, take out your written service agreements with staffing agencies. Um, I, I know that, you know, I, I tell hotel operators all the time, and executive teams, your managers are signing agreements that you probably don't even know about <laughs> with third-party vendors. So take a look at those, gather them, take a look at them, make sure you are partnering with reputable third-party staffing agencies that you have a good line of communication with and start looking at the language where you, where it, where it deals with control. How much control are you retaining as, a, as the hotel operator um, over this, these staffing agency employees? And is there a way to dial that back? 
in your written service agreement. So that I would I would um, that would be the first line of defense. Um, and to you know to the extent that you, I know we can't eliminate the use of staffing agencies, but to continue to minimize that you know that 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 relationship as 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 much as you can is going to help. Um, um, consider look if you see if you have any independent contractors because this can apply. I mean, we've been talking about groups of employees, but it could mm -hmm. also apply to you know one-off individuals. So if you've got a, a chef who you're treating as an independent contractor or um, IT folks, you know it's time to take a look at whether that's an appropriate characterization of the relationship or whether they should be on your payroll. <clears throat> yeah, I didn't even think about the things <laughs> like that. Particularly if you have a if you're a you know a conference hotel. If you have, if you bring in outside, uh, like an AV crew or something for running those meetings, exactly. You know, when I go and do uh, speeches, I do a lot of public speaking, and I, I go back to certain locations and I see the same AV folks year after year. Uh, you know, you've, it, as we always say, if it looks like if it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. It's probably an employee. So, yeah, yeah, we need to be careful about those relationships um, as well. You know, it, it, not much you can do about your franchise or franchisee agreements, but, you know, take a strong look at them with an eye towards this issue is, you know, it, can I can I live with the with the, uh, the the risk and the danger? You know, it's interesting because the franchisee is the employer of record mm -hmm. uh, of these folks. Right. So it's really the franchisor that is, you know, is, is potentially getting dragged into um, legal issues that they would rather avoid the franchisees already going to be yeah 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 it's uh gonna be a very interesting very interesting fight uh would, would owners if 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 you know just the owner of a property any chance that they would be pulled in in this uh, in any well, fashion if, if they're if they're just i own the property and i'm contracting a third party manager to come in and and operate it or or i'm, I'm leasing the space out would an owner get pulled in at all? Much like the franchise or franchisee situation. Um, it, it depends on your relationship with the management company. I have management company clients that work with owners that are very hands-on, right? We have an asset manager on property that is involved in day-to-day -day meetings, operational decisions, you know, so it depends on how hands-off the ownership group is. But yes, I, Brian, that's a very good point. Owner-management uh, owner company um, relationship as well could be in jeopardy. This, yeah, I mean, this is potentially going to upend quite a bit of uh, the uh, the working relationships out there. Yeah, it is. Or I guess Brian will, you know, we'll all decide that we're in this together. You know, we'll, we'll, you'll you'll just have very little argument to get out of the lawsuit, the unfair mm -hmm. labor practice charge, the the union contract, the collective bargaining. I mean, you're just. Uh, you know, it's not a. I don't mean to say it like it's a throw up your hands sort of argument, but if if the wall's too high to climb, you may just realize you're, you know, you're in you're in the boat with the franchisee, you're in the boat with the management company, and you're in the boat with your staffing agency. Which is why I say, you know, contract with reputable, you know, vendors, all of them. Right, it's always a. <laughs> it's always yeah. a good idea to to find the uh, the the best, most uh, ethical and law-abiding partners right. you can exactly if you, especially if you're going to be in a lawsuit with them <laughs> uh you know but speaking of lawsuits 
you know, no, no rule is going to go unchallenged. What do you, what do you expect uh, to come out of this? I mean, the, I, I can't imagine everyone in the hotel industry or, or any industry that this is going to affect is going to say, oh, well, well, this is it. We'll just go along yeah. with it. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree, Brian. I think we're going to see some challenges. Well, we know, you know, there's a very robust franchise associate, you know, many franchise associations out out there outside of the hospitality industry Mm -hmm. um, and certainly within the hospitality industry. The American Hotel and Lodging Association is fighting this battle. This is a a high priority for them. So they've um, prepared and either have or are getting ready to submit um, comments on the final rule. Um, I, I do think we're going to see some legal challenges. I think some of these franchise associations have already announced even this morning that they're going to try to file some lawsuits, sort of the standard, the standard lawsuits that we file against government agencies when they, um, you know, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't follow the Administrative Procedure Act correctly. However, we can attack it, even if we're not on the merits, we'll, um, we'll, we'll try to slow this thing down. So I think we will see that for sure. Gotcha. So, uh, I think that covers everything I was going over here, but any, any final thoughts that you would like to share? Yeah, you know, I think it's time for you to to, to operators, um, owners, and managers to you know take a strong look at at how you want to approach this. Um, take a look at your agreements. Meet with your executive team and your high high level managers, and and give them some training on, you know, how we want to to coordinate with our third party vendors or staffing agencies. You know, how we want to communicate with them. Um, you know, make some conscious decisions about that at this point before it's too late. All right. Well, Andrea, thank you very much for uh, for helping break this down for all of us. And uh, thank you all for listening. Stick with Hotel News Now for further uh, coverage. Hi, I'm Isaac Colazzo, Vice President of Analytics at STR. Hi, and I'm Jan Feitak, National Director for Hospitality Analytics for the Coastal Group. Tune in to our new show, Tell Me More, a hospitality data podcast. It's a podcast on the global hotel industry, its current trends, what we're thinking about, and where the industry's going. And we like to have fun with the data, too. Find us on hotelnewsnow.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe today. Thanks for listening to the Hotel News Now Podcast Network. This episode was recorded on October 30th, 2023, and produced and edited by Brian Roden. You can subscribe to the Hotel News Now podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you find podcasts.